I'm sure many of you listeners have heard the name Dole at some point in your life. Maybe to you it's associated with Hawaii, or maybe it's associated with Disneyland and waiting in line by the tiki room to get that treasured Dole whip. Maybe it's simply a brand you've seen on the grocery store shelves. Yet, how many of you truly know the story of the man who was so passionate about farming, and in particular, farming pineapples, that he created a pineapple empire and was suitably dubbed the Pineapple King. And how can pineapple, of all things, be linked with an impossible competition that led to death and disappearances? Here's what lies beneath James Drummond Dole. Files. I'm your host, Lachelle. Today, I have Randy with me, and she is going to take us on quite an adventure. And part of her vacation to Maui, she recently went to celebrate in Maui for her 30th birthday. I mean, what the heck? How is that even possible that I have a child that's 30? And she and Porter were able to squeeze in some cemetery time amidst all the birthday fun. Hey, Randy. Hello. I am super excited to tell this story and kind of take you guys on a little adventure. And yeah, talk a little bit about visiting Maui. I turned 51 this year and Randy turned 30. I said to her the other day, I mean... Eventually, we're going to be basically the same age, right? Yeah, eventually it like (laughs) evens out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have been adventure buddies through life and everything else. Very true. The whole time. And you are one of my greatest treasures in life. So happy birthday and thanks for taking us to Maui today. Yeah, so... Just really enjoyed this trip. It was just super relaxing and um, also adventurous. Like you said, I'm kind of the adventure adventure girl, and Porter very much enjoys going on adventures with me. So loves the traveling. Yeah, we just have a lot of fun stories and adventures to tell, I guess, and to experience. And this trip, um, since I was turning thirty, I won't didn't want a boring trip. I wanted fun and adventure, excitement. <laughs> so on my birthday, we actually did a helicopter ride, right? which was really neat. <sighs> and we got to go to a different island. So we flew from Maui and they kind of did a little tour of Maui. And then we flew over the channel to see parts of Molokai and Lanai. And so it was really neat because you got to see those other islands that aren't as easily accessible and trafficked and it was really neat. So to do that, we had to get up super early and we had a very early flight time. And when we were done, it was still like eight or nine (laughs) a.m. So it was like the big birthday adventure was like kind of already over by early morning and then we had lunch reservations, so yeah. had a couple of hours to kind of kill. And I was like, well, do you, you think we could maybe visit a cemetery since we just have some time? Porter's like, it's your birthday. Right. I mean, well, what better way to celebrate turning 30 than by visiting a cemetery and really thinking about life? Contemplate your old age. And <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's what we did. And. Really, this episode has to be given credit to Porter because I had no plan and no idea who might be buried on Maui at all. 
and he researched it kind of just on the fly and found we were near Makawao Cemetery, which is an older cemetery on the northern kind of central part of Maui. And it's adjacent to a really large veterans memorial cemetery as well. But Makawao is the older of the two and more specifically where we learned we could find the grave of James Drummond Dole. So that's what we did. <laughs> so cool. You know there's got to be a story behind such an empire as the Dole family. Yeah, and like when you go and visit Hawaii, there's like there's the Dole plantation you can tour. There's like Dole whips that are like sold at little ice cream stores. Like it's very well known and still all over the island. So yeah, we knew that we had to kind of go check it out. And the cemetery itself was pretty small, but I found it super interesting just because it was so lush. And again, <laughs> right. Arizona cemeteries, Arizona girls here. We're obsessed with things that are green and water. Like water is amazing to us. We're like, there's water. Water is so <laughs> amazing. Like can't tell you how many hikes I have gone on just for the promise of like seeing a waterfall or a pool or something at the end just thinking it's like the most fabulous thing ever right yeah so i was pretty uh fascinated by the cemetery having so many flowers and like greenery in general even the whole hedging along the fence they were hibiscus bushes <laughs> cool that's really awesome so yeah, it was like every part of it was just different and unique and they were blooming with all these beautiful massive flowers and the inside grounds had palm trees and garden planters and lots of ironwork, fenced-in family plots, which I always like. And most of the graves were spanning around mid-1800s to mid-1900s with a few oh. kind of on either side. And then... Lots of moss and lichen covered many of the stones, which did make it difficult to see. So that happens a lot in these tropical areas. At least I'd assume, since I think this is the first tropical location for a cemetery that we've discussed. Yeah, I think so too. I think California is as far west as we've gone. So this is so yeah. fun. I'm so excited to hear about it and... You can just picture the palm trees and hibiscus and just sounds really amazing. What did his headstone look like? Um, it's pretty like classic, just like simple looking headstone. Let's see, he died in the 1950s. So it was just like a, you know, a marble, uh, kind of gray marble headstone. And he is in one of the fenced family plots, buried there with his wife and has... Um, you know, a nice like couple of trees and, and stuff in the, in the fence. So I have pictures, of course, so I will share. We will kind of pass that along. Yeah, can't wait to see all of them and share them with all of you. So let's dig in. James Dole was born September 27th, 1877 in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts. He was born into a Puritan family who were among some of the first to settle in the colonial America. His father, grandfather, and great-grandfather had all been clergymen. And so there was a rich tradition of religion in his family. However, his father, Charles Fletcher Dole, was pastor for 40 years of the First Congregational Society of Jamaica Plain, which was a Unitarian church, and generally was thought of as progressive, particularly on his social issue stances such as women's suffrage and black rights. Not unexpectedly, he expressed the hope that his son would also enter the ministry. And family business there was an uncle and a cousin in the clergy the family business <laughs> so this was just kind of what they did i like that because it's also like he's not a traditional cler clergyman in some ways like with his views but it still was just like that family tradition <laughs> yeah i mean he would be the fourth generation if he had gone so that's kind of you know three generations back all doing the same thing you would 
feel a little bit like you needed to do that too, but he wasn't really interested in that. And young Jim, as he was often called, his interests rested elsewhere. He had been tasked as a young boy with the chore of tending to his family's garden. And this chore turned out to not really be a chore to him at all. He took a great delight and also pride in this endeavor and found that his true calling was, quote, not the ministry, but the land, unquote. He became intent on making a fortune out of agriculture. And his other passion of sailing and his extended familial ties to Hawaii helped him iron out his plan on how he would do just that. So he already had family in Hawaii in that his cousin Sanford Dole, who was actually born in Hawaii, was responsible for the forcible overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. So he, yeah, kind of was the driving force behind that and petitioned President McKinley and Congress to accept Hawaii as a territory. That's interesting that, you know, this cousin is responsible for kind of us bringing Hawaii in as a a territory. Yes. So the Dole family name does extend further in history than just, you know, the pineapple part of it that people would think. Eventually, Sanford also petitioned to be named governor, which he was in 1900. All right. So... James Dole, he wasn't the only Dole there in Hawaii, and he wasn't even the first Dole there in Hawaii. Nope. And I've been colloquially thinking of them as like good Dole and bad Dole through all this research. <laughs> You're like, okay, wait, no, this is the bad Dole. And oh yeah, yes, this one is the good because Dole. <laughs> that was kind of the general feelings <laughs> towards them, I feel like. But honestly, there was just a strong urge to capitalize and conquer land in this family. And that that's just a theme world over is conquer, capitalize. We see it over and over. True. Well, that cousin's influence was enough for Jim. In 1899, after graduating and receiving his degree in agriculture from Harvard, Jim sold his prized possession, his sailboat, to help pay his way to get to Hawaii to start making his fortune. With a total of $1,500 in savings, all he had to his name, he made his way to live with his cousin in Honolulu. And in his autobiography, he describes his early years in Hawaii as follows, quote, Following my inclination toward an agricultural pursuit and the lure of Hawaii, then recently annexed to the United States, I landed in Honolulu on November 16, 1899, and within two weeks found the town quarantined for six months by an outbreak of bubonic plague. Yikes, we know how that feels. So we can kind of relate to that. Yeah, <laughs> like he just gets to Hawaii. He's just getting his feet on the ground and quarantined for six months. During that winter, I saw the fire department with the timely aid of a stiff trade wind burn down all of Chinatown. <laughs> the intention having been to disinfect, to disinfect in this thorough manner, only one or two blocks. So we're going to burn down these few blocks, but then it all burned down. I just love how the fire department isn't putting out fires. They're like <laughs> starting fires. <laughs> I think they were calling that a controlled burn. A controlled burn. They got out of control. Like, I don't know what the intention there was. He goes on to say, I bought a government homestead of 64 acres, 23 miles from Honolulu, and on August 1st, 1900, I took up my residence thereon as a farmer, unquestionably of the dirt variety. After some experimentation, I concluded that the land was better adapted to pineapples than to peas, pigs, or potatoes. You know, a bunch of other words that start with P. Why did he only choose those things? <laughs> like, he's just like, Why only he peas. Pineapples, peas, pigs, potatoes. 
He's like, what else starts with parsnips? Pea? What could I plant that starts with pea? <laughs> and you don't plant pigs. <laughs> no, that's true. It concluded that the land was better adapted to pineapples than to peas, pigs, or potatoes. And accordingly concentrated on that fruit. Really, the only crop industry in Hawaii was sugarcane up until now, but James Drummond was not about to go the ordinary route. And so the pineapple empire began. <laughs> now, pineapples have been an attempted business in Hawaii before, but had little commercial success, as there were some difficulties that pineapple in particular posed. Firstly, pineapple plants take two years to mature and bear fruit. So that's a pretty long time and a lot of effort before seeing any yield. Mm -hmm. Secondly, several companies had tried to ship pineapple fresh, but since there weren't planes really yet, it was proving impossible to keep them fresh enough as pineapple reportedly did not travel well. However, Dole was planning to can pineapple to avoid this second issue. This had actually also been attempted before, but pineapples had to be painstakingly hand-cut and it was a timely process. Yeah, I I think it takes me a good five to ten minutes, right, to cut a pineapple. Right. Can you imagine? And imagine on a large scale and how many you're trying to produce. And yeah, it mm -hmm. takes a lot of manpower. So none of this, though, deterred Jim. And he proceeded to plant 75,000 pineapple plants on 12 acres of his land and opened a small cannery. People reportedly laughed and scoffed at this and really doubted that anything would come of it. He was also still a young 24-year-old who was not native to the area, just setting up shop and claiming he was going to make it big. So I honestly can see why people would have been a little skeptical. <laughs> I can kind of picture like our Rhett, you know, he's 21 really white redhead you know moving to the newly annexed right. island and the people are like what are you doing here just seems like a little out there i could see how they're like okay here comes another guy thinking he's gonna come over here to our land and make it big on a crop yeah i like this kid that's like oh, i'm gonna make a fortune and they're like mm -hmm. oh, he's gonna make a fortune and everybody's kind of like oh yeah okay kid and yeah, pretty hard to imagine a 24-year-old man, in this day at least, being that obsessed with growing pineapples in general, I guess. <laughs> right. And it kind of seems like we're going to say the word pineapple a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sorry no, about it's that. just kind of um, like, pineapple, pineapple. I was like, maybe this needs to be like a drinking game or something, but I think we're going to say it way too much. So yeah. Disclaimer for anybody that actually like drinks that. alcohol, do not turn this into a drinking game because it would be very dangerous. But if you wanted to like be really hydrated or something, you could drink pineapple juice. You know, pineapple juice. Yeah, water, whatever. But yes, you'll be hearing more about pineapples than you probably ever um, needed to. <laughs> Either that or it's going to make you really hungry for... Some pineapples or some Dole Whip, which right. I really need some pineapple ice cream right about now. For sure. Of course, I always want ice cream, and Dole Whip is one of my favorites, so. It's not technically ice cream. Uh, what is it then? It doesn't use cream. There's no dairy? There's no dairy. Really? Yeah, we looked up the recipe for it because I can't remember it now, but it's not dairy. <laughs> well, you learn something new every day. It's kind of more like a pineapple sorbet, sort of. Okay, well, it's amazing, whatever it is. Whatever they put in there, it's real good. So in 1901, Jim officially founded the Hawaiian Pineapple Company, or HAPCO. However, the negativity continued to surround his vision. The Hawaiian business community had little interest in another attempt at a pineapple company and largely expressed words of doom before it even began. So Dole was forced to return briefly to Boston to fundraise from family and friends. He was able to scrounge together a meager $14,000, but financial support did come eventually from San Francisco's Hunt brothers who were impressed by Jim's passion and vision. Finally, 
Joel had caught his first break and could focus in on building his business. He is quoted as saying his business objective was to, quote, expand the market of Hawaiian pineapple to every grocery store in the United States, end quote. But he didn't become the pineapple king without more trial and tribulation. He had the regular trial and error of finding and growing the right type of pineapple, how to irrigate, challenges in keeping pests away too. And they really didn't know much about canning pineapple and they had a lot of learning to get a productive cannery going as well. His business did grow, but he ran into another challenge. People. Uh oh. <laughs> People. Especially from the mainland. They really didn't know what pineapples were. It's just weird to think now. Pineapple is so common now, but that's partially in thanks to James Dole. So by 1907, he was producing more pineapples than were selling. So he devised a nationwide ad campaign with the help from other Hawaiian pineapple growers to make consumers aware of pineapples. But this is what he did, and it worked. Sales increased rapidly, so much so that then his canning operation was lagging behind. And it took a tremendous amount of man hours to hand peel and cut all of these pineapples. And it was now one of the slowest pieces of the production process. But in 1911, Dole hired an iron worker by the name of Henry G. Jenica in hopes that he could help make this a more efficient process. Henry then invented a new machine that automatically peeled and cored 100 pineapples per minute. And this revolutionized his industry. Now he needed more land to grow pineapples to keep up with the ease that they were packaging and selling, which eventually led to Dole's purchase of the island of, of Lanai in 1922. He turned the entire island into what would become the largest plantation in the world at over 20,000 acres. So we were actually able to fly over Lanai and see the pineapple plantations, or at least what used to be the pineapple plantations. Because they're largely, yeah, they're largely unused now, but they still haven't all completely grown over. So you can kind of see like these big cleared field type areas and crazy to see how much land was all just dedicated to that. That must have been so cool to see. That is really neat. And so was there wild pineapples kind of growing or was it just more dirt? Not that I could see. It was just mostly like kind of big fields at this point. Really interesting. Well, unfortunately, it wasn't all rainbows and dull whips and his success. Largely, the massive amount of work was done by migrant workers who were paid low wages by most standards to mass produce so much and keep pineapple prices down. However, in comparison to the slave labor and indentured servitude of the sugarcane industry that dominated the islands, most of the workers still tried to get into work with Hapco. Dole, we feel, generally had good intentions and provided his workers with many benefits unheard of at that time and accredited his father's teachings to this. He remarked, quote, I come from stock, which measures things mostly by the golden rule. At least father did. Of course, being a minister, he wanted me to be one, but he didn't urge it when he saw I wasn't keen for it. However, he did counsel me to choose a calling which had in it some element of service to others, unquote. Dole seemed to genuinely try to shape his business in a way that cared for his employees. He said, quote, I've been particularly interested in trying to organize our business in such a way that every employee, so far as possible, may feel that his interest is that of the company and vice versa. I don't claim to have reached this point, but the recipe seems obvious, the golden rule. He was committed to the payment of good wages and providing safe, healthful, and morally wholesome conditions for the work in the factory and on the plantations. 
By 1915, there was a workman's compensation plan in place, and by 1920, a generous pension plan. By 1921, a stock ownership plan had resulted in employees owning 31% of the company. And by 1922, the company had built housing and a model village amenities for its field workers. By 1924, the cannery had lockers, dressing rooms, a cafeteria, and a medical dispensary, and also athletic facilities. And by 1928, the company had a profit-sharing plan. During the entire time Dole ran the company, there was never a strike. The employee village was Dole's pride and joy, and he generally accredited this as his greatest achievement. However, it was sometimes met with some scrutiny by employees, as it essentially was all-encompassing and enabled Dole and Hapco an exorbitant amount of control over their employees, where they went and ensured that you know, they were always around. They were always available on company property. I was kind of reading on some of this. It was like, oh, if you work for Dole, you kind of have to, like, use the employee village. Like, it, yes, it was an amenity, but it was like you had to live there. And then you had to shop at just these grocery stores. And mm-hmm. you were always around. So they kind of knew what your schedule mm-hmm. was. And so it just... Right. Oh, hey, we need you to now do this. And it's like... We know where you are. <laughs> yeah, it just wasn't really free, a free kind of thing. It was very, yeah, just controlling was kind of the criticism. Okay. And then there were still some problematic practices of segregation within the village as well. Different races were segregated within like the different housing. And there was still the overall low wages. So not perfect, but all right. But unfortunately, it was still better than the norm at this time. Absolutely, yeah. These practices and drawing off of the horrible conditions of the sugarcane industry allowed him to cut prices so low that he drove out all the other pineapple producers that were smaller or didn't fall in line with his methods of business until one main competitor was left, Alexander in Baldwin. We saw some Baldwin graves at the cemetery as well. Oh. And, um... We figured that they were kind of influential because there was lots of streets and buildings named Baldwin in the area. So I didn't really know who they were until doing some of this research. But, yep, the Baldwins were a major kind of powerful family and and company. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. Well, Alexander and Baldwin, they were all part of the Big Five a group of primarily sugarcane businesses that were so powerful, they were essentially considered an oligarchy in the new territory of Hawaii. When they got into the pineapple business, Dole was intent on finding ways to keep his business ahead of the massive and all-encompassing corporations. And this is where things get interesting. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) The plot thickens. In 1927, something extraordinary happened. Charles Lindbergh made the first successful transatlantic flight, and the world was becoming open to new possibilities of travel and aviation. Do you have any idea why this is relevant to James Dole? No, the only thing I could think of is having to do with him now being able to ship. But still, that... I mean, Charles Lindbergh and his plane, I mean, that's a far cry from being able to fly, you know, and ship uh, pineapples. So, yeah, I'm not really sure how this fits in. And, yeah, he that definitely factored into it. But mainly, Jim was just so inspired by this journey. And since he is the business-minded man, we know, Mm -hmm. his mind began racing with all the possibilities for shipping, tourism, and new advertising prospects for his business. So he hatched a plan to thwart his last competitor and to capitalize upon the excitement of aviation and decided to sponsor the Dole Plane Race. 
Wait, <laughs> what? If it sounds a little crazy to you, that's because it was. <laughs> so he wants to put on a plane race. Yes. So this race was an aviation race from San Francisco or Oakland, to be more exact, to Honolulu, Hawaii, in which Dole had promised $25,000 to the first place winner and $10,000 to the second place winner. Oh, wow. I mean, that was a big prize in those days. Yeah, it was several hundred thousand dollars in today's money. So it was a big prize. Mm -hmm. The catch, however, is this flight had never been done before at the time he announced his race. Oh, wow. Which like, yeah, the first transatlantic flight just happened. This is in the 1920s. So aviation was just kind of starting. That's kind of crazy. So no one had flown across the Pacific yet. Nobody had flown across the Pacific yet. And that first transatlantic flight had just taken place. And this was an arguably more difficult trip in nearly every way. One expert warned, quote, the 2,400 mile distance from San Francisco to Hawaii was 1,200 miles less than Lindbergh's distance. Mm. But the distance over water was 600 miles further and Lindbergh had been aiming for France, which is somewhat bigger than Oahu, end quote. So, you know, aiming for like the entire continent of Europe is a little bit different than aiming for small islands in the middle of the Pacific. <laughs> so yeah, bit. what could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Right. But it, and two, like if you run into problems and you're flying over land, you might be able to find a field that you could land in or a road or something like that. But when you're over water, there's not... Not a lot of options. A lot of options, <laughs> let's just say. I just can't imagine that there were many people who wanted to take him up on that offer, right? It just sounds really risky and dangerous. Yeah, well, I mean, the race attracted a motley crew of adventurers, stuntmen, and pilots. I guess there's always people up for the impossible. Yeah, and the the allure of adventure and the glory that kind of that brings. Yeah, ragtag teams of airmen and navigators across the U.S. jumped at the chance to conquer the Pacific, just as Lindbergh had done for the Atlantic. The prize money was one thing, but the glory is really what pulled people in. Unfortunately, the glory of being the first plane to fly to Hawaii was taken claim by a pair of army lieutenants who landed in Oahu just weeks after the race was announced. Wow. They were military though, so the focus and kind of advertisement of the race became, oh, the first civilians to complete the race. Okay. Which then was also accomplished before the race had a chance to happen when a small monoplane piloted by a young airmail pilot named Ernie Smith and his navigator, Emery Bronte. They crash landed in a thorn tree on the island of Molokai, 26 hours and 36 minutes later, completely out of gas. So it wasn't easy, right? So yeah. these flights had happened, but it, they weren't smooth. They were definitely dangerous and desperate to still have the race continue. The rationale was, well, they crashed. So does it really count? It wasn't to Honolulu specifically. They were on Oahu, so it's fine. And besides, there was still the prize money. Mm -hmm. And it might have helped as well to be like, well, they did it. So it's not impossible. Yeah, that's true. It kind of fueled the fire, maybe. Like, Despite the odds and warnings, 15 planes had secured a spot in the race. Wow. Among the adventurers who were dubbed the Dolebirds. <laughs> it's cute, right? Yes. Was legendary Hollywood aerial stuntman Art Goebel, Mildred Doran, a young Michigan school teacher whose flying jacket was adorned with fraternity pins from admiring suitors. Aww. <laughs> it's cute. William Randolph Hearst's son hired a pilot named Jack Frost to fly for him, while the popular cowboy actor Hoot Gibson entered his plane Pride of Los Angeles. Oh, wow. There was also the renowned World War I flying ace Captain William Irwin and Hawaiian local favorite Martin Jensen, who only managed to enter after his wife rallied the citizens of Honolulu to buy him a plane. <laughs> 
So he didn't really even have a plane or much experience, but he was going to oh, wow. make his claim. Yeah. In gratitude, he swore to make it or die in the attempt. Most intriguing of all were two Navy lieutenants, George D. Covell and R.S. Wagner, in a mystery monoplane. So quite the characters. Yeah. Who would you put your money on? All right. Well, let's see. We have a Hollywood stuntman, a cute Michigan school teacher. Oh, she did have a flight jacket. But she had a flight jacket. <laughs> I'm just like, I mean, that just, I'd like to know more about her story. Like, so was William Randolph her son? Did he fly in the plane with Jack Frost? It was just like, go do this for me. No, he... He basically was like the money man, which we saw in some of these planes. Like sometimes it was like the person owned the plane, but they hired a pilot. Sometimes it was them that flew and they hired a navigator. Sometimes it, there was one that was just a single, just lone person doing it all. Oh, wow. Um, I think I'm going to go with... The World War One flying ace, Captain William Irwin. I mean, he's he's got to have a ton of experience, you know, in flying. I mean, World War One. Right. So I'm gonna go with William Irwin. Right. Which seems like a really kind of solid choice. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> come on, William. Let's do this. So who, I mean, I know you know the end of the story because you wrote this episode. <laughs> But as you were reading about it, who would you have thought to go with? Um, at first, I was really intrigued by the Navy lieutenants and their like mystery mm-hmm. plane. Like they were supposed to have this like fancy. So that kind of makes sense too. Kind of like set up and like something that was different. And they were, you know, they had military experience as well. So that seemed like a good choice just initially. Mm-hmm. But. Foreboding signs already started to appear when the latter two, who I would have put my money on initially, Mm -hmm. were flying from San Diego to the start of the race in Oakland. A thick fog gathered. Unable to see, the pair slammed their monoplane into a cliffside where they perished in a fiery wreckage that cascaded down to a beach 75 feet below. The dull plane race had already claimed its first victims before it had even begun. So... No way! Not a good start. Oh, that's awful! In addition to this accident, another pilot, Captain Arthur V. Rogers, took his plane for a test flight when suddenly his plane plunged from the sky in the midst of his landing attempt. (gasps) He also died before the race had even started. Okay, this is just getting... It's getting ugly, like, fast. (laughs) Oh, my word. I mean, they're not even flying over the Pacific Ocean yet. And that's just, like, how unpredictable I feel like aviation still was at this time. Like, planes were not reliable. They weren't like we know planes today. I'm just thinking, why would they do this? Ah! But this did not deter the Dolbirds. The race was still on, and... There was a a strong following that kind of started brewing in the public. They were drawn to the drama and the excitement of it all. And crowds by the thousands started lining the runways and admiring the arriving competitors cheering as each new entrant arrived. So many people that one pilot crashed his stalling plane into the sea to avoid the crowd of spectators packed around his runway. Like he couldn't even land the plane on the runway or he was going to be running over people. Yeah, it was like his plane was having problems and so the landing was going to be rough anyways, it seemed. Oh, yeah. And so instead of like crashing off to the side and all to the people, he literally drove his plane into the sea. Amazingly, he survived, but... He was unable to begin the race. He basically, yeah, destroyed his plane. So okay, so <laughs> this is really getting terrifying. Like, and I don't know what happens at the end of this. So I'm, I'm feeling nervous right now. I'm like, I'm nervous feeling about like sweat is starting to bead on my forehead here because I'm just like, we already have people dying and they haven't even started yet. And 
then the like frenzy with the public and everything there just kind of makes me feel like there's a lot of media around this race, which is what Dole wanted, right? That was kind of the whole point. But yeah, there was a right. lot of publicity. It sounds like that was working. And we see people really getting into these daring things that are done or things that are exciting and mm -hmm. really hyped, you know, during that day, like when we talked about Bonnie and Clyde, like the crowds of people were just insane or right. uh, Rudolph Valentino after he died, like people were busting down doors, windows, everything just to get in to see his body. And this was like around the same time frame, you know, this is in that. Yeah, that's true. That same time frame where I think people just didn't have a lot of entertainment really. Yeah, there wasn't Netflix. Yeah, there was no, no Netflix and chill. It was all just like finding these little things to go and see. And yeah, people were crazy. You can see why you would be like, yeah, we want to take, we want to go all the planes see coming all in. these planes come in and yeah, or taken off for it. So you, I can understand it really. I mean, this was a big, this was a big deal. And this was history. I mean, this right. was historic. Trying to make this Trans-Pacific flight, so... Yikes. Okay, so we're finally getting to the big day of the race. So we're getting we're getting closer to the big day, and as it's approaching, nearly every pilot had some sort of trouble simply getting to and or preparing for the race. So when August 16th, race day came around, only eight participants remained. So out of the 15... Yes, it already dwindled down to eight. Like... Practically half. Okay. Yeah. All right. So this was the final lineup that day. We have Golden Eagle, which is described as, quote, a handsome little Lockheed monoplane, which stood out among the dull entries because it had a metal rather than cloth covered fuselage, end quote. Oh. So <laughs> I didn't realize that planes were made of cloth. Like, <laughs> Excuse me, they're flying across the Pacific in a cloth plane. In a cloth covered like, fuselage. I was like, oh, okay, well, Golden Eagle does sound pretty good. So, um, <laughs> maybe I need to change my, uh, my vote. Yeah, you didn't have all the facts and I asked you first. That's right. No, I'm going for my guy still. This was uh, piloted by Jack Frost. So oh, okay. That was the, the, the Hearst, Hearst plane. Hiree, yeah, employee or whatever. Okay. Um, then we have Aloha, which was a lemon yellow monoplane with a pink flower lei painted on the side, piloted by Martin Jensen, the Hawaiian <laughs> favorite who crowdsourced his money to buy his plane. And what else would his plane look like? I know. It sounds adorable. And then there's Woolarock, whose pilot was Art Goebel. Mm -hmm. So that's the stuntman. Okay, all right. And then we have Miss Doran, which was Mildred's plane. So that's our school teacher. Come Mildred, oh Mildred. Oh, oh Mildred. Are you sure you want to do this, Mildred? <laughs> you had so many suitors. They gave you all of their pins. Maybe go call one of them up. I'm scared. Just go home. I'm really scared, Mildred. Just, oh, just go Mildred. home. <laughs> and then we have Oklahoma, which is a sister ship to the Woolarock piloted by Bennett Griffin. And then we have your guy, Flying okay. Dallas Spirit. All right. So that's Captain William P. Irwin. Yeah. And World War I combat victor. Dallas Spirit. Then we have El Encanto, which is a metal monoplane of Navy Lieutenants Norman A. Goddard and Kenneth C. Hawkins. And this was said to be one of the prettiest planes and a little bit nicer. I'm assuming maybe even had metal on its fuselage. Yeah, the, it was <laughs> the metal monoplane. So, I mean, Navy New Lieutenant's metal monoplane. That It does sound like that they should have had, you know, good odds going Yes, here. this one was heavily favored. So El Encanto was kind of the favorite from the crowd. And then we have, last but not least, Pobco Flyer whose pilot was Major Livingston Irving. All 
right. Okay. <sighs> so those are our players. I'm so nervous. Are you ready for race day? I think I'm ready for <laughs> race day, but I'm afraid because, I mean, pre-race was pretty rough. So, all right. Pre-race was rough enough. Just rip off the band-aid. Tell us. Tell us what happened. So I'm going to read the account of race day as written by the San Francisco Museum's archive okay. article because I just loved how right. everything was painted. The picture was painted for race day. So... The crowd surged against the fences as the start whipped his flag down just before noon. Oklahoma. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you laughing? (laughs) Because this part makes me laugh every time. (laughs) Oklahoma rumbled down the runway. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, it's rumbling down the runway. It's just like, so, such a bad start. So... Oklahoma rumbled down the runway, struggled into the air, and the dull race was on. So, just... Okay, is this one of those cases of foreshadowing? (laughs) The first plane that's off is struggling, is described as struggling into the air. So, it's not off to a good start. Okay. But there was a big cheer from the crowd. So, the big cheer that went up for Oklahoma turned to shrieks in a moment. El Encanto... Rocked along the runway, shot off to the right, swerved, and fell over on her left wing. Goddard and Hawkins crawled out unhurt, but their plane had had it. But their plane had had it. So Encanto was the favorite, and it didn't even get off the runway. Oh my gosh. Okay, so we have one that limped into the sky, and the next one just crashed off to the (laughs) side. This one literally fell on its side. And the pilots just had to, like, crawl out. Oh, my word. Okay. And so next we have Irving's Pabco Flyer. They tried it next, lifted momentarily into the air, settled back, and bogged down into marshland 7,000 feet from the starting line. <gasps> Are you kidding me? These guys can't even get off the ground. So, what makes them think that they can They fly? can't even get off the 20, runway. What was it, 2,400 miles? Can you imagine, miles? like, a huge crowd of people? Oh, my gosh. Next we have Golden Eagle. Golden Eagle gave the spectators their first big thrill. True to pre-race form, the sleek and handsome ship got off smoothly and went streaking off to the west. There we go. That's what I expected from a plane race. We've got air. (laughs) We've got flight. A big roar went up for the trim and able craft. And Miss Doran, the next in line, looked almost pathetic by contrast. Oh, no. Battered, flimsy, and clumsy... The little biplane managed to rise, but no spectator was surprised when she came back in just 10 minutes. Aw, sweetie. So it got up, kind of circled back, and came back. And I didn't write all of what happened in pre-race, but she had a lot of problems just getting to the start as well. So Yeah, she probably had a fabric-covered biplane. That's why her plane was already battered and... Oklahoma came back too. Something ripped in her fuselage over San San Francisco, and her crew figured it was better to be safe than sorry. Okay, well, at least they're showing some sense here. Right. Okay, so at this point, we have one plane in the air. We have one plane in the air. And already two crashes. And I I shouldn't laugh, but I laugh when I'm uncomfortable. And it's just like so ridiculous. It just feels so doomed from the start. It just feels so doomed. Okay, so what about my guy? So it was the same for Dallas Spirit. She went away in her turn, but something was wrong with her tail assembly. So the team brought her back. Oh, gosh. Okay. But Aloha got off all right, as did Woola Rock. Okay. Three planes in the sky. (laughs) Three planes in the sky. Two of the false starters decided to try again, Miss Doran and Popco Flyer. Okay. The latter cracked up for the second time, and that was it for Irving. Uh, like, I am done yeah. trying with this piece of junk playing. <laughs> yeah, he's like, this was not meant to be. I'm just staying here, and I, good for him. Yeah. Miss Doran rose slowly, went on out, and disappeared. Uh, so... With all of this buildup and excitement, a grand total of four planes were actually in the air racing towards Honolulu. (sighs) 
death and destruction had already ensued and there was a long day and night of flying before any winner could be announced. It took around 25 hours to fly to Hawaii at this time. So just keep that in mind. This isn't a five hour race. Right. Oh my word. Okay. Goble and Davis in their plane Woolerock got their win. It took them 26 hours, 17 minutes and won them Dole's $25,000. So we had a winner. Awesome. Go Woolerock. They did it. And that's the stuntman. So stuntman and his navigator got That's amazing. The prize. In second place, Martin Jensen in Aloha got there in 28 hours, 16 minutes, and won $10,000. I feel like he was kind of an underdog. Yeah. Wow, that's so cool. But what happened to the other two planes? Nobody knows to this day, as neither the Golden Eagle <gasps> or Miss Doran planes and the people inside were ever no. seen or heard from again. I'm sorry, Mildred. Oh. Mildred. You should have gone home. You should have gone home. Oh, Mildred. You should have gone home when I told you to. Oh my gosh. So they crashed over the Pacific somewhere. Yeah, essentially they've, they've never been found, but it's thought that they yeah crashed somewhere over the Pacific and sunk and no wreckage or anything was ever found. So. Oh, that is so heartbreaking. It's it's really sad i mean we'll kind of we'll kind of get into it here like kind of what all ensued but at this time captain Irwin, so in dallas spirit my captain he decided he was still going to set out for hawaii after some repairs on his plane and on his way he was going to search for the missing two so that was kind of part of like why it was hard to even find them because there weren't planes like oh true right flying over like searching there weren't helicopters there weren't these things these tools to help find them so he was kind of volunteering hey i'm gonna still try it head that way and i will search for them see if i can see where they're at unfortunately he also disappeared never <sighs> to be seen again Andy, this is terrible <laughs> i know oh captain no so in this whole thing, that means 10 lives were lost altogether before, during, and after the race. The oldest pilot was only 32 years old and almost all of them had families and spouses, mm. which is wild. Like what a price to pay for adventure. And for Dole, how must he have felt about this? Right. Knowing he had a major part in putting this on and basically daring people to go do this and then all these people die. Like, how did he feel about that? Reportedly, he was distraught and very affected by this and offered $20,000 in reward for any of the missing people. However, that was never claimed because they were never able to be found. This story is devastating. Wow. I mean, doesn't it sound like it should be a movie? I totally think this should be a movie. This, I mean, maybe there is one and I just didn't come yeah. across it or don't know about it, but somebody go make a movie about this. I feel like this is such an unknown, relatively unknown story. And it's just wild to think that this actually happened. I know. Uh, well, gosh, so sad. I mean, good for the people that made it and won their money and... Wow, this is crazy. So this seems to be the beginning of the end for Dole and his role in the Hawaiian Pineapple Company. As by 1932, in the midst of the Great Depression, the value of his goods had declined and the company began to lose money. Well, you can imagine pineapple probably wasn't at the top of everybody's list to buy during the Great No, the demand went down... For sure. And so he was actually released as management, but was still involved with the company until he retired at the age of 71. We didn't talk about them really, but he did have a wife named Belle Dickey Dole and five children. And he was able to provide a really wonderful life for his wife and kids. He then suffered from many ailments after his retirement including several strokes and heart attacks, until he died from a heart attack on May 20th, 
1958. He is buried in the Makawao Cemetery near Makawao on the island of Maui with an epitaph chosen by his wife reading, quote, He was a man, take him all in all. I shall not look upon his like again. What do you think of his epitaph? I think it's fitting. I thought so I too. I thought it was interesting. It suits him. At first. He wasn't perfect, but take him as he is, but there won't be another one like him. Yeah. I thought so too. And like, I didn't, I thought it was kind of odd when I just saw it, but after learning about him and kind of his personality, I felt mm-hmm. like it did, yeah, speak to how people are imperfect, but he was a rare man kind of with great ambitions and, you know, great dreams. and One of those rugged individuals that we talk about. Yes, and doesn't mean that he could do no wrong. You have to take the bad with the good, but mm-hmm. he truly was kind of a gem. It's kind of how I took it. He definitely left a lasting legacy, and something we haven't discussed yet is... In all this time, we've been talking about the Hawaiian Pineapple Company. When did it become the Dole Pineapple? Yeah, so remember that cousin Sanford we talked about in the beginning? Yeah, the bad Dole. The governor of Hawaii, eventually bad Dole. (laughs) (laughs) Overthrew the queen Dole. Mm -hmm. Um, Apparently, he didn't want the family name being used for commercial purposes. And personally, I kind of think it was more like He was vain and didn't necessarily think that the company would be successful Mm. and didn't want his name associated with anything that might make him look weak or less than. Okay. So Jim had always honored the request while he was in management. But after his removal, the company board was like, hey, Dole is a really popular name. Like you have a lot of name recognition. We're going to change it to Dole. So that's what they did in 1933. Which just seems a little ironic that they kick him out of management, but then they take his name for the company. They name name it after him. That's just me. Now the Dole brand extends to more than 90 countries with over 170 fresh and packaged food products. It has the formal partnership with Disney and continues to be a leader in produce after revolutionizing an industry 100 years before. Wow, that was quite the wild ride. I didn't know that this story was going to be so bumpy and there was going to be so many twists and turns in this stormy story. And yeah, yeah, yikes and crashes and fiery explosions and all because of pineapple. All because of pineapple. I don't know. I might not look at pineapple ever again the same way. Like next time you eat a pineapple, you think about all the things that happened to create this company. It's it's really interesting. Yeah, I thought so too. And just thinking about about the cemetery and everything there and just all the history. And it's just, I, I would have had no idea. <laughs> Which is part of why I like doing this, right? It's because you learn the backstories. Yeah. Because it's not just, oh, Dole the pineapple guy. It's like the fiery (laughs) explosion plane guy and the, you know, largest plantation in the world guy and the guy that liked to sail. Yeah. Yeah, great, great story. Thanks, Randy, for discovering this amazing story and going to the cemetery on your birthday (laughs) and for sharing it with us today. That is so cool. Also, we do have a new Patreon member shout out. This is not, you know, unexpected that we would get this amazing supporter. (laughs) This is my mom, um, Edith Austin. So thank you so much for your support and for always supporting and listening to every single episode. We love you. James Drummond Dole, known for his veracity, his big dreams, and his innovations. There may have been many bumps in the road, but it was cool that he did in fact realize his dream to expand the market of Hawaiian pineapple to every grocery store in the United States. If you enjoy pineapples now, think of Jim resting easy under his palm tree. 
his grave overlooking bygone pineapple fields and the great Pacific Ocean. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and even TikTok, where you can interact with us. As always, we love to hear from our listeners. Thank you.